Wrong way driving causes hundreds of traffic deaths each year. Though they account for only 3% of car crashes, one study showed that wrong way accidents can be 27 times as lethal as others. Surprisingly, wrong way accidents are on the rise in multiple states for some reason. Arizona saw a significant rise in 2019. And man, something's going on in Wisconsin. In 2018, police recorded 500 wrong way driving incidents compared to a total of 300 incidents for 2015, 16, and 17 combined. So they need to like get new signage or something. One time when I was in high school, I was coming back from, I think it was, it was kind of late. So it must have been from like musical practice or something like that. So it was a little bit late and I was coming home from Visalia and I was coming right there down the 198 headed west uh, where the 99 dumps onto the 198. And sure enough, I, th- I thought, well, are those headlights? And there were headlights coming at me on the wrong side of the freeway, and then they were going upstream on that off-ramp. And I just thought, man, that is it for somebody. And I didn't have a cell phone, I don't think, or maybe I did and I didn't know what to do, but I don't have the end of that story. It was probably (laughs) awful, but it happens. In the 14th chapter of Proverbs, we are presented with a pretty chilling verse. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. If our lives hang in the balance when it comes to the way that we're going, it's natural for us to want to know the right way to go. Okay, I would rather not die, so what's the right way to go? The way that leads to life instead of death. Luckily, actually lovingly, God not only gives us that dire warning, he also then helps us with instruction that we need. He comforts us uh, with many verses like these that we find in the Psalms. Psalm 73, 24, you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up in glory. Psalm 32, 8, I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. And so there are two very distinct ways. In fact, Jesus called himself the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him. Well, when we left off, Paul the Apostle found himself on a staircase, having been saved from a violent mob who was trying to beat him to death. With his life actually hanging in the balance, Paul asked to speak to the crowd, and the Roman uh, commander allowed him to do so. Tonight, we will see him give a personal testimony of how he was on a road that led to death but was now going God's way. In other words, he recounts his origin story to them. And it won't turn out to be all that effective. Most of you know this story. This is a hard-hearted crowd filled with folks who largely had their minds made up. But for us, it's helpful and inspiring to hear Paul tell it because in Paul's story, we see how a person starts to walk with God, how he was going one way and then how he began to walk the other way, to go God's way rather than the human way, which leads to ruin and destruction and death of all sorts. And it is particularly instructive to us since it was Paul himself who said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So that can seem like a a high bar for us sometimes, too high of a bar, right? When we think about who Paul was and what he did and how God used him. And then he says, now you imitate me the way I imitate Christ. He was a miracle worker after all. He was an apostle. He was uniquely used by God to change history. He had visions of the risen Christ. Though we don't expect those particular elements to necessarily be a part of our walk with the Lord, 
it's helpful to remember that Paul was a man just like us. He was a person just like you and me, uh, a person who uh, was imperfect and had to grow in the Lord and had to grow in his knowledge of God and follow after him. Uh, Paul uh, didn't always know what to do in his walk with the Lord. And that's a comforting thought. And we've seen that in our studies of Acts. There are times when he's out on the mission field and he said, I'd like to go over here. And the Holy Spirit says, no, you're forbidden to do that. Oh, okay, well, I guess I'll go over here. No, no, you're not gonna do that either. So it's not like he had some sort of spiritual crystal ball or had everything mapped out or he was so holy or so smart that he just knew how to do everything. No, he was a person just like we are. And then he turns to us and he says, okay, now follow me the way that I follow Christ. He was led just as we are to be led. In the end, we know that he finished well and that he made it to that glorious destination that we are all aiming towards as Christians. And so seeing that change from taking man's way to then taking the Lord's way should rouse our hearts and inspire us as we go the same way. We begin in verse one. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense before you. His friendliness and candor almost makes us forget that these people just moments earlier were savagely beating him to death. I've never been beaten to death. I've never even really been beat up before. These people were beating him to death. And Paul had an immense love in his heart for his fellow man. I mean, it was just remarkable. Uh, how much he loved people, even his enemies. He sees them as family, calls them brothers and fathers. Sometimes he reminds me of Doug, that dog in Up. Uh, he has that wonderful line, I just met you and I love you. That was Paul. <laughs> he just loved everybody. Uh, I uh, had a thing the other day, I was driving on one of these residential streets, like Dowdy or something like that, and I guess the person who was down the street thought that I should have been driving faster because they just like go, and it just in residential, and they're going around me and stuff like that, and you know, road rage, and nothing happened. You know, I didn't go up, you know, an off-ramp or anything like that, but I get upset when somebody acts a fool in the car next to me, right? Paul's having people stomping his face, kicking his kidneys, doing all this stuff. And he's like, man, I love these people. I hope I can tell them about Jesus and how they can be set free from their sin. Paul's affection here reminds us that the way of God is a way of love and grace. It's called the more excellent way in 1 Corinthians. God's way is not one of hatred and resentment and division. It's the way of love and grace. That's the path, right? we think about different types of roads or different types of paths out there. We have footpaths, bike paths, you have the Autobahn. You don't go walking on the Autobahn, right? You're going to have some real trouble. You don't bring a tractor onto a footpath. Well, God's path for us is a path of love and grace and hatred and resentment and division don't have any place on it. Verse two says, when they heard that he was addressing them in Aramaic, they became even quieter. You'll hear a buzz term in Christian circles eventually, if you haven't already, and it's this, engaging culture. It's the topic of conferences and seminars and articles and things like that. Uh, in my experience, no one ever really nails down what they actually mean when they say, we need to engage culture. Uh, but as you listen, you get the distinct impression that the message of the gospel probably needs to change or be massaged in order to become more palatable to a secularized world. Most of the time, people don't come out and say that, that that's what they mean, but that's kind of the vibe that you get. I think we can see an excellent example of what engaging culture actually should mean in Paul's example here. 
Out of the languages Paul could speak, which were multiple, uh, he spoke with the one that everyone would understand. He spoke plainly. Uh, in other words, he didn't preach to them in Latin, right? In a language that no one would have understood or would have been foreign to them. He didn't even speak to them in Greek, which would have excluded a lot of people and only included some. Uh, but he also didn't change his message or change the you know, representation of Christ in order to uh, match up with the taste of the crowd. He didn't refashion the gospel in a way that would be palatable to this mob. The gospel is meant to be countercultural, right? So a lot of times when you hear um, Christian speakers or whatever talking about engaging culture, in the end, a lot of times what that means is mimic the culture as much as possible, even in the way that you present the gospel, and then hopefully people will be saved. But the gospel is countercultural, right? And, and to engage culture means to communicate the once delivered truth of the scripture in a plain way that will hopefully save people out of their bankrupt culture and into the kingdom of God's everlasting light. There's a second thing here. This important message wasn't delivered with everyone shouting over everyone. You remember that scene a number of chapters back when uh, they thought Paul and Silas were gods come down from the Greek pantheon and everybody's shouting and they're trying to get them to stop sacrificing and it's just a terrible scene. Nobody's listening. They can't preach a message in that situation. They're like tearing their clothes. It's a bad scene. You can't really deliver a message with everybody shouting over everyone. Now, our culture right now is a yelling culture. Nobody wants to listen. It doesn't matter if you're talking about sports or politics or whatever, you turn on the television, what do you see? Four boxes yelling at each other. That's what you see all the time. And social media really feeds into this as well. Social media has tossed out all common courtesy right out of the window. And we, we, we hide behind phrases like, well, I'm just telling it like it is, or sorry, not sorry, or things like that. But we're all just yelling at each other and everybody's just being aggressive and, and everybody's just shouting in a sense. It does no good to blow up at people and rage at them. That's not the way to convince people that they're wrong about life. Maybe they are wrong. Uh, but when we see uh, people in the word of God speaking the truth of the gospel, they're always doing so from a place of compassion and grace and love because that's the way that God approaches us. If anybody had a right to be angry and upset and point a finger, it's the God of heaven and earth who we have wronged from the very beginning. We're wrong about everything in comparison to him. Every single thing, every fiber of our being is wrong in comparison to him. And yet he comes to us uh, not with the lightning bolts of Zeus. He comes to us uh, with nail-scarred hands. And he says, yeah, while you were still sinners, I died for you. Uh, I loved you first. You were at war with me, but I made a way to make peace with you. Verse three, Paul continued, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strictness of our ancestral law. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. Before he was a Christian, Paul was the, and forgive me, I'm gonna go back and forth calling him Paul and Saul, okay? You guys all know that Paul and Saul are the same dude. But before he was a Christian, Paul was the pinnacle of human achievement, if you think about it, in many ways. Intellectually, educationally, religiously, culturally, he was the smartest, most disciplined expert in the room, in any room he went into. He was a brilliant, enthusiastic nationalist. He was a Jedi Knight 
of, Jeru of Juda Judaism, okay? He was the guy, the Jedi Knight of Judaism. And what was the result of his unmatched advanced devotion to his way of life? I mean, if anybody did it right, according to the way human beings think about you know, human achievement, it's Paul, right? He has all of the best education, all of the best background, all of the best achievement. He's fine-tuned his mind. He's prepared himself for this life. He's the guy. And what did it lead to? Verse four, I persecuted this way to the death, arresting and putting both men and women in jail as both high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. After I received letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to arrest those who were there and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. And so the result of the highest achievement of human effort was death and destruction and ruin. That's the best that man's road could produce. So effectively, he's Anakin Skywalker, right? He was supposed to be the best of them, right? You were supposed to rid the world of all of the evil and he becomes Darth Vader. Or for you non-Star Wars fan, if you grew up in a pure Star Trek home like I did, we'll move off of Star Wars for a minute. He's like Harvey Dent, right? <laughs> Harvey Dent was supposed to be the best that Gotham had to offer. And what happens? You know, he gets down the end of his robe and he rode and he becomes Two-Face. And these guys who were supposed to be the pinnacle of goodness and rightness and excellence uh, end up being the major villains in the story. And so the one who is supposed to be the great hero turns, up to, uh, turns out to be a killer at the end of that road. Now, elsewhere, Paul talks about how in his fury during this time of his life, he compelled people to even blaspheme God. I love the justification and, the, and the, uh, uh, just the excuses that humans make for ourselves, right? I'm, I'm such a holy person. I'm so dedicated to God that I'm going to, through violence, force people to blaspheme God to show how holy and righteous I am. Uh, but that is what the way of man does. It perverts and destroys and twists up minds and uh, brings ruin everywhere that it goes. He talks about how he hunted people. He hurt them. He acted in whatever way he could to destroy uh, these peaceful, innocent believers. Man's road leads to death, eternal death for the individual and death for the people around them. Now, as Christians, we can still take some notes from Saul's example before he was a Christian here. And one of the big ones is this, legalism does not lead to growth in your spiritual life. It leads to devastation. Listen, Saul was the most religious person on the planet at the time. And yet he was also the greatest enemy of God at the time. That should blow our minds and, and make us really pause and think, okay, I want to avoid legalism at all costs. I want to avoid religiosity at all costs. I want to make sure that I am approaching God in, an, in a true love relationship where I am abiding in Jesus Christ, not hiding behind rules, not hiding behind forms, not hiding behind any sort of thing that is going to introduce this kind of religion into my life. Nobody was more religious, more upright, more circumspect than Saul of Tarsus. And he was the greatest enemy of the church and of Jesus Christ on the entire planet. And so we want to avoid legalism like the plague. 
what do they say in the Grinch? I wouldn't touch you with a 39 and a half foot pole, right? That's the same idea. We wanna make sure about that. In our own lives, if we turn from the path of the grace of Jesus Christ to the path of legalism, it will ruin us. The book of Hebrews talks about this. The book of Galatians talks about this. Examples like this show us this. It will ruin our growth in the Lord and ruin our spiritual lives. It will kill compassion in our hearts. It will dismantle mercy in our hearts. It will destroy spiritual fruit and it will bring true negative impact on the lives of the people around us. Now, since we know Paul's story, we know also that his life isn't just a cautionary tale about avoiding legalism. It's also one of the greatest redemption stories of all time. He had been the chief crusader sent out to annihilate God's people through whatever means he could. And now we see him on this staircase and he is completely turned around on a completely different road. He's not only headed towards heaven, but it's a road full of peace and compassion towards others. He couldn't be any more different than what he was. And in this, we see one of the most important contrasts between man's way and God's way. On man's way, the mentality is, okay, join us or die. And if you stand in the way, you're getting knocked down, you're gonna get crushed, I will, I will you know, I will own you and level you if you're in the way of what I think is right. But that's not how we are supposed to act when we're walking on God's way. Now, listen, don't get me wrong. The way between going God's way or going man's way is a, a choice between life and death. And when Jesus returns, those who won't, haven't gone his way and have rejected him will be judged and they will be sent uh, to everlasting punishment in hell. So I'm not trying to suggest that everybody is you know, right or everybody is gonna be saved or anything like that. But listen, as we go God's way, we are never supposed to go like a crusader goes, right? Paul was, Saul was going out as a crusader. And sadly, in you know, the history of the church, there was that period of time where people under the banner of Jesus Christ said, we have an idea. Why don't we do what Saul did before he was a Christian? And we'll go down the road and we'll tell people you can go our way or we'll murder you. This sounds exactly like what Jesus wants us to do, but it's not. It's the opposite of what Jesus wants us to do. We don't act like crusaders. We don't bulldoze people who stand in our way. We don't try to crush opposition. What did the Christians do in Acts when they were opposed? They presented the gospel. They endured persecution and escaped it when possible. They never militarized against those who weren't with them or disagreed with them. Think of when Paul went through Cyprus. He preached to the governor of the island there and that man was saved. They didn't then establish a commission to outlaw unbelief or to go to war with unbelievers. Our mission isn't to destroy, it's to build, it's to bring people along. Our marching orders are to rescue, not to retaliate. And we need to remember that because ours is such a polarized, politicized, angry culture of who's on my side. And if you're not on my side, I'm gonna do whatever I can to knock you down, knock you down with my words, knock you down with my policies, knock you down with my behaviors. That is a crusader mentality. It's not a compassionate mentality. Verse six says, as I was traveling and approaching Damascus about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. Paul thought himself enlightened and according to man's way, he was. But that was a total darkness compared to the light of Jesus Christ. 
On the road to Damascus, Paul was brought to the stunning realization that even though he had dedicated his entire life to knowing and honoring God, he had completely missed the mark. He didn't even recognize who the Messiah was. What a sad thing. Looking at our Lord in this scene, we can notice some tender things about him. First, he still identified with us. I thought this was great. He called himself Jesus of Nazareth. He could have called himself Jesus of heaven, could have called, it, could have called himself Jesus, the, you know, the king of all kings. He could have identified himself with any one of his wonderful names. And what did he say? Hey, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth was not an impressive place to a, to a guy like Paul the Apostle or anybody else, sorry, Saul of Tarsus or anybody else uh, on, the, on the earth at the time. I think about it this way. As far as I know, when Journey used to perform in big stadiums, Steve Perry didn't come out at first and say, before we get started, I want all of you to know I'm from Hanford. Nobody cares, Steve. Like, and he doesn't care. You know, I mean, that's, that's not something to boast about. Uh, it's probably something he would rather forget, I'm guessing. <laughs> but, it's, but Jesus comes, he says, hey, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. And it reminds us of, of how he identifies with us, how he's God with us and how he will remain God with us forever and ever, forever and ever, the God man. He put on flesh and he keeps it, right? He keeps that glorified body uh, because he loves us and identifies with us so much. Second, in this encounter, we see Christ's astounding mercy. Remember who Saul was and what he was doing. There was no greater enemy of Jesus Christ than this man on the entire planet. He was the worst, most bloodthirsty, terrorist murderer. No one hated Christians more than this man. No one killed more Christians more than this man. No one did more to harm the cause of Christ at this time on the entire planet than this man. In our way of thinking, the Lord should have met him with a lightning bolt or a plague or just the earth opening up and eating him, right? But instead, he met Saul with mercy, with an invitation, with grace. Imagine for a moment, uh, hopefully this doesn't touch a nerve, but imagine for a moment that SEAL Team 6 made its way into Osama bin Laden's compound that night in 2011, broke in, knocked him down, and then said, we want you to come with us. We're gonna grant you American citizenship. We're gonna fill your accounts with inexhaustible supplies and resources, and then we're gonna make a place for you in the US government. You wanna come? What? Put a bullet in that guy. That's what we're all thinking, right? right? I mean, because, because of the things that he had done. And obviously, justice needs to be served in these situations. Okay, but when we think about what God has done for Paul and what God has done for you and I, I mean, we are just as deserving of capital punishment before a thrice holy God as anyone, right? Paul may have, or Saul of Tarsus may have done more terrible things than we as individuals did before we were Christians, but before a thrice holy God, it's all the same, right? The wages of all sin is death. Whether you killed a Christian or whether you were just a regular old black-hearted sinner, the wages of sin is death. And so our crimes against God deserve nothing but capital punishment. And yet what did he do? He met us on our road headed as fast as we could towards hell. And he met us with grace and mercy, extending that love to us and giving us a free invitation to join him. Verse nine, now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. There were witnesses to what had happened on the road that day. The way Paul walked with God was rooted in reality and truth and revelation. 
there are other world religions. Uh, Mormonism is one of them where the founder of Mormonism said, a bunch of stuff happened. I saw visions and there were tablets and glasses. Did anybody else see that? No, and you can't see it either. It was all taken away. Okay, uh, are there any witnesses? Is there any truth or reality to the things that you've been saying? Or do we just have to take your word for it? You have to take my word for it. Okay, uh, but even today, you have people who claim to be prophets or speak for God. And so much of what they say is not rooted in reality, not rooted in revelation. It is just the fancies of a mind who are trying to take advantage of people. And so Paul, what he said, you know, he said, listen, the high priest who's over there, he's watching right now, he can testify, the council can testify that these things are true of me. These dudes that were on the road with me, they're still around, they can tell you what happened. And so it was rooted in actual truth and reality and revelation. He didn't base his spiritual life on trends or false prophecies or worldly philosophies packaged to look like Christian religion. It was based off of what was real. Verse 10, I said, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus and there you will be told everything that you have been assigned to do. Right at this beginning moment of Paul going God's way, we see that he was assigned and commanded. So far, he had been going his own way according to what he thought would be best. But from this point on, he was going to be directed by God step by step. Going God's way means we must obey. Uh, that, and that means that we must be commanded and listen to what he tells us to do. He leads, we follow. Paul recognized that he was under the authority of a master. He acknowledged that Jesus was Lord. To go God's way does not mean that we choose to make God a mentor to us, that we're kind of, you know, living our lives and we'll let God, you know, have kind of a say and some influence. He's not our mentor, he's our master, right? He's the Lord. We must acknowledge what is true, that Jesus Christ is king and we are his servants. The rest of Paul's life would be under the direction and command of his Lord. Ephesians 2.10 says this, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Like Paul, there are things we must do. And so we accept that we are no longer the chief executives of our lives. We never really were, we just thought we were. But we're especially not in charge of our lives now as believers. You are instead called to be a willing participant in the perfect will of God, following as he leads in a definite direction according to his definite purposes and his timing. That's the deal. The Bible demonstrates that God's people do have the freedom to leave the path of his leading, to leave the path of his will. Think of Moses killing the Egyptian, John Mark abandoning the missionaries earlier in this book, Peter going fishing after the crucifixion. Rather than assume we know what is best for our own lives, we must continually be led by the Lord in what he wants us to do. He said to Paul, you're gonna be told everything that you need to do, and so will we. We've been given the word of God to guide us. We've been given the Holy Spirit to indwell us and direct us. We've been given fellow Christians to assist us and encourage us and sharpen us. Give the Lord the, not only your heart, but the helm of your life and follow in his ways. Verse 11, since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and went into Damascus. Now listen, Paul was still a genius. Paul was still the most educated guy in the room. Uh, but the Lord was teaching him that on this new way he was going, he would have to be led moment by moment. God wants to lead us by the hand too. 
And it's not that we're against education or experience or any of that. If God has uh, given those things to you in your life, given you intellect, then use him for his glory. But whether you're the smartest person in the room or the dumbest person in the room, you're just to be led by the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't, in some sense, really matter if you're the smartest or the dumbest person in the room because you serve the living God who is able to do all things and he does all things well. And whether he's speaking through a ignorant fisherman before the Sanhedrin or the smartest Pharisee to the Sanhedrin, he accomplishes his purposes. And so we want to be led the way that Paul was led. In Psalm 139, we read this, if I live at the Eastern horizon or settle at the Western limits, even there, your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. We don't always know which way to go in life or how to respond to different situations, but the Lord does and we can trust him to lead us. And so the question is not whether God is gonna lead us in our lives. The question is whether we're interested in following his guiding hand for the choices that we make. Verse 12, someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, who had a good reputation with all the Jews living there, came and stood by me and said, brother Saul, regain your sight. And in that very hour, I looked up and saw him. Paul had described the Jews as zealous earlier. It was a term that at the time was all wrapped up in politics and nationalism and agitation, but he describes Ananias as devout. It means circumspect, godly. We see that he was not a man who went around making enemies. In fact, even facing persecution, he knew why, Paul was come, why Saul of Tarsus was coming to Damascus. He knew that he was on the list of people that were gonna be dragged from their homes and probably murdered in Jerusalem. But what do we see him doing? Facing that kind of persecution, he still maintained good relationships with the Jews around him. And he too was a man led by God. We remember reading about him many chapters ago. And he was led to do something completely unpredictable, completely inadvisable, and something he was frankly unqualified to do, go work a miracle. We have no indication that he had been a miracle worker before. And yet, because he went God's way and went in faith, trusting the Lord, this man was used to completely change the course of human history, completely change it. It was never something he would have planned or he would have thought up or he would have been able to do on his own, but because he was willing to go God's way, all of human history was changed. Thinking about how this all played out, we're reminded that God's way is a way of restoration. The Lord has overcome the world, but his victory is more than just putting down his enemies. And so when we hear about, well, be of good cheer of overcome the world, that is good because we think of, okay, nothing that stands against us will be able to overcome us. Those are all good things. But when it comes to our enemies who are human beings, those people out there who are not believers and are standing against us as individuals or the church or whatever it is, God's victory is more than just putting down his enemies. He restores people. He transforms their lives. Looking back, and we see how this play out, we don't want Saul to stay blind and abandoned in a house in Damascus, do we? We don't. Now, it was really great that he was overcome. He was an enemy of the gospel, a foe against the church. And so we're so glad that he was knocked down and taken out of that position of power and that he wasn't gonna hurt anybody anymore. But do we want him left blind and alone in some sad little house in Damascus? No, we want him to become Paul the apostle. We want God to do that amazing restoration in this life. We want God to do the impossible, 
to take a man who was the worst enemy of the church and become the church planter who wrote all the epistles and led directly to you and I being saved because he was the one God used to speak the gospel in Europe, right? That's what we want. We want God to do that restorative work, but it requires grace and requires Christians who are willing to be agents of grace. Verse 14, and he said, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear the words from his mouth, since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. This general calling to know God's will, to hear God's word, and to follow the Messiah and testify about him to others, that's our calling as well. The specific obstacles and opportunities each of us will be presented with will vary, of course, but this right here is the way of God, and we're to walk in it. It's a way that requires faith and trust, but it is a path every single one of us can make progress on as we move through this life. Notice the assignment wasn't, Paul, you're gonna be an apostle, so go figure out how to make a successful Gentile church. God already knew how to do that, right? He, he had providence, he had a will, he has power, he knows how to accomplish what he wants to do. Instead, the assignment was, Paul, follow the Lord's navigation for your life, go with him as he leads you, and bring others along if you're willing. That's the job. Verse 16, and now why are you delaying? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Don't be troubled into thinking that this verse is saying baptism, water baptism is necessary for salvation. It isn't. There are a lot of linguistic reasons that scholars get into, but we also know that there were about 10 baptisms demonstrated in the book of Acts, and often salvation and spirit filling preceded water baptism. And the New Testament is very clear that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. So what about baptism? Well, water baptism is commanded by Jesus. If you're a Christian, you need to be water baptized. Your king told you to. In one sense, and hopefully you don't find this disrespectful, but in one sense, it's kind of, to me, it's kind of like, in one sense, getting to a new job and you have to fill out the W-4 form, right? When do you, are you officially an employee? When you sign the W-4 or when they say you're hired, right? I mean, and so we kind of understand this on a human level that there are things that you're supposed to do that you need to do that are required of you, but no one says you're not an employee until you've turned in the W-4. So listen, baptism is important and wonderful and commanded, and it is a significant part of doing that witness work that we are all commanded to do but water baptism does not remove the sin from your heart. Water baptism is not required for salvation. And so we care about it, we obey the Lord, but we keep it in its proper place. Verse 17, after I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him telling me, hurry and get up out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. They wouldn't receive the testimony. Well, aren't I supposed to be a witness? Am I not supposed to go and testify? Yes. Does that mean Paul had failed in his assignments? No. As we go God's way, we are told to try to bring others along with us, but we are ultimately responsible for ourselves. We're to be burdened for others and have compassion for them, but in the end, we cannot force people to join us. Verse 19, but I said, Lord, they know that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. First, we see here that going God's way means sometimes our own wisdom is gonna be confounded. Paul was simply wrong about how things were going to shake out there. 
Luckily, he believed the Lord and submitted to the Lord's leading and it helped him avoid disaster. Second, we see how terribly priorities get skewed when you go man's way. Think of that scene that we studied so long ago. Saul was there making sure nothing happened to the clothes of the people who were illegally murdering an innocent man who was just trying to tell them about their Messiah. Well, I don't want the clothes to get taken or ripped or anything like that. We can't have that. Is he dead yet? Throw more rocks on. But that's the, that's the way of man, prioritizing clothes over a human life. But we can also take such comfort in the fact that God can redeem and restore and transform anyone. Had Paul not gone God's way, then verse 20 would have been his legacy forever. But God saved him and changed him and made something beautiful out of his life. Maybe you've made terrible mistakes in life. Maybe you've fallen short in your callings or responsibilities. So did Paul, so did Moses and David and Jonah and Peter. God is powerful enough to bring you back and use you for a glorious eternal legacy. That's what he wants to do. So go his way. Verse 21, he said to me, go because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This was not Paul's plan. It probably wasn't even Paul's desire. Of course, he wanted all men everywhere to be saved, but his heart was truly for his countrymen. But going God's way means surrendering your heart and your helm to his leading. Maybe you think you have some great plan that would be great for the Lord and his church, but be sure to ask God if he agrees with you because you wanna have a reason for being the places you find yourself in in life and in ministry. When Paul was in Jerusalem or in Cyprus or in Corinth, he could say, I'm here because God led me here. I'm here for a reason. I'm here for a purpose. John Mark, he couldn't say the same thing at certain points of his life. Why are you here? I'm here because I bailed. Not because I was led here, but because I didn't want to stay where God had led me. David couldn't say God led him uh, when he was hiding out in Philistine territory in that sad period of his life. Lot couldn't say that God led him when he pitched his tent towards Sodom, right? Going God's way means following his prescribed itinerary for your life. One commentator said this, the Lord views all of our goings as rewardable or judgeable. Indeed, we are eternally held accountable for every decision we make. This truth calls each of us all the time to a life driven by God's purpose. Now that reality shouldn't frighten us, it should excite us since we know that God is ready to lead and to lead us on his way, which is full of joy and growth and life and meaning. Finally, verse 22, they listened to him up to, the, up to this point and then they raised their voices shouting, wipe this man off the face of the earth, he should not be allowed to live. Men going their own way are only willing to listen to a point. Ultimately, if they wanna continue heading down their own path, they will either have to reject God's message or stop and repent, turn around and go with him, forsaking their previous path. Their hard-heartedness came at an incredible cost. They missed the most valuable treasure imaginable that day, eternal salvation. They turned down the opportunity of a lifetime. In going this way, many of them no doubt sealed their fate of judgment and death. And once again, their way led to ruin, ruin for themselves, ruin for others around them, ruin for their nation. God's way is the way we wanna go. It can seem daunting or confusing, but we see that it can be done. It's not always easy, but it is simple. And we're to be led, be led by God, led in our movements, led in our decisions, led into the will of God as he accomplishes good work through us that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Stay on that path, abiding in Christ, and in the end, we too will lay hold 
of all that we truly want and all that God wants for us as he leads us home into glory.